come now to our scripture reading on this Reformation Sunday from Job chapter 31. We'll consider what we've called the active obedience of Job. I mean, the, the Reformation, one of the things that was so emphasized was the active obedience of Christ, his righteousness imputed to us. The, the, the story of the gospel really hinges on Christ truly being righteous. We've been seeing in the book of Job how the, the story of Job is ultimately a shadow of the story of Christ, and so he also must be righteous. The righteousness of God's suffering servant is an essential element to this gospel drama, and that's what Job 31 speaks of, and so we'll begin reading Job 31 at verse 1, where he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? For what is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is it not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and count all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood or if my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed on honest scales that God may know my integrity. If my step is turned from the way, or my heart walked after my eyes, or if any spot adheres to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Yes, let my harvest be rooted out. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down over her. For that would be wickedness. Yes, it would be iniquity, deserving of judgment. For that would be a fire that consumes to destruction and would root out all my increase. If I have despised the cause of my male or female servant when they complained against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he punishes, how shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one fashion us in the womb? If I have kept the poor from their desire or caused the eyes of the widow to fail or eaten my morsel by myself so that the fatherless could not eat it, but from my youth I, I reared him as a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or any poor man without covering, if his heart has not blessed me, and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless when I saw I had help in the gate, then let my arm fall from my shoulder. Let my arm be torn from the socket. For destruction from God is a terror to me, and because of his magnificence I cannot endure. If I have made gold my hope or set it to fine gold, you are my confidence. If I have rejoiced because my wealth was great and because my hand had gained much, if I have observed the sun when it shines or the moon moving in brightness so that my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity deserving of judgment. For I would have denied God who is above. If I have rejoiced, at the destruction of him who hated me, 
or lifted myself up when evil found him. Indeed, I, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for a curse on his soul. If the men of my tent have not said, who is there that has not been satisfied with his meat? But no sojourner had to lodge the street, for I have opened my doors to the traveler. If I have covered my transgressions as Adam, by hiding my iniquity in my bosom, because I feared the great multitude and dreaded the contempt of families so that I kept silence and did not go out of the door. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me that my prosecutor had written a book. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps like a prince. I would approach him. If my land cries out against me and its furrows weep together, if I've eaten its fruit without money or caused its owners to lose their lives, then let thistles grow instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. Irrigation, not long before his death, J. Gresham Machen, the founder of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, sent a, a final telegram to his friend and colleague, John Murray, which read, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Those were his dying words and his only hope. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. And here in Job chapter 31, we have some last words as well. Verse 40 says, the words of Job are now ended. And these words too emphasize the active obedience, the uncompromised law-keeping of God's servants. Machen, of course, speaking with reference to Christ. Job, with reference to himself, who was a shadow of Christ. As we've been going through this book, we've been seeing how Job is a picture of what God is going to do in his son. All the way back in Job chapter 1, God is the one who brings Job up to Satan, uh, holding him up as his champion who will silence the accuser through suffering. That's what Satan's name means. He is consistently referred to in those opening chapters as the Satan, literally the accuser, who has been going to and fro on the earth trying to wreak havoc on God's people and God's kingdom, trying to, to accuse them. As he comes into God's presence at the very beginning of the book, God directs his attention to this righteous servant. It's interesting how Job is called God's servant so often in those opening chapters, the same way that Christ will be referred to as the servant in the Psalms or in Isaiah, the prophets. But God directs Satan's attention to his servant. The very first thing that he says of him is that he is blameless and upright. In fact, he says that three times. The book begins with that in Job 1.1. The first thing that God says 
to Satan about Job in Job 1.8 is that he is blameless and upright, fears God and shuns evil. And then again, it gets in Job chapter 2, verse 3, the same thing is repeated. God wants us to know that this servant is blameless and upright. And yet he will allow him this blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil to become the object of horrific suffering in order that Satan might be silenced as it becomes clear to him and to us that God is worthy of worship even apart from the gifts that he gives, even in the midst of suffering. As Job would say back in chapter 13, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. The battle for God's glory throughout the book of Job centers on the fate of a single individual who is righteous yet suffers. Yet as as you read through the book, you see especially in places like Job 29 and 30, which we looked at two weeks ago, how his suffering is a picture of the suffering of Christ might recall back in chapter 29, he is described in in this messianic language as giving um, eyes to the blind and feet to the lame, ruling in justice as a king among his people, the way that that Psalm 72 speaks of in that messianic psalm. it, It speaks of him as one who comforts those who mourn, sort of language that the Bible will elsewhere use of God, of his Christ. And then in chapter 30, Job's suffering is described in ways that parallel so many of of the messianic psalms and of the prophets where it says that he's become a byword among the people, even at the very lowest in society, mock him. They spit in his face. Job says in chapter 30 that God has afflicted him and his soul is poured out within him. Things that we hear echoed in the gospel accounts of the crucifixion. And so in both of those chapters, just before this, in in Job 29 and 30, Job's description of himself points uh, typologically, that that is as a a, a type and shadow, foreshadowing the Christ, God's son and God's servant, the righteous sufferer who would silence the accuser by remaining faithful even to death. But as we see this gospel picture, it's important that we be reminded again of of what we were told at the very beginning of the book, of the absolute necessity of the righteousness of this man. And that's what Job 31 is describing. As Job speaks of himself in ways that point beyond himself to the one he foreshadows. C.J. Williams His book, The Shadow of Christ in the book of Job, says we have come here to the crescendo of typological imagery in the book. Elsewhere, he says of Job 31 that Job's avowal of innocence here in this chapter is a prophetic image of the perfection of Christ. That's what's going on in Job 31. And the Holy Spirit, I believe, makes this clear in the way that, that he describes this righteous one in verse 33 in contrast To Adam. Did you notice how Job says, if I have covered my transgressions as Adam? Not as as some translations render that as others or as mankind generally, but as Adam. 
Job is here presenting himself as something of a second Adam, passing the test that Adam failed. And so there is this great redemptive historical significance to what's going on in this chapter. Yet before we get to that, there's also practical significance. So we first need to grapple with the ways that the righteousness of Job 31 um, calls us to righteous living. So what I want to do first this morning is walk through Job's description of himself and see what we can learn about the righteousness God requires. And then we'll sort of zoom out and consider how all of this fits with the picture that the Spirit is painting of the one to come. So just two points. First, the practical significance of Job 31 and the prophetic significance. Me first, that the practical significance as Job in this chapter basically shows us what the portrait of the blameless man from Job 1.1 looks like. And it looks, first of all, like one who is pure in heart. And notice how Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully upon a young woman. And Job is committed to being pure in heart. Job is committed to not letting his eyes take secret pleasure in what God has called forbidden, indulging visually and mentally in one who is not his wife. Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to do that. Job understands the demands of the seventh commandment that are written on on the hearts of man and and the moral law to go beyond just, just actions, but also to include looks, thoughts, and desires, and whatever may incite someone toward them. That's what Lord's Day 41 says in its exposition of the seventh commandment. And Job is reminding us that Jesus didn't just all of a sudden invent this in Matthew 5. But it has always been understood that it's wrong to indulge in these kinds of lustful thoughts. And it's not insignificant that Job fronts his list with this because there is something about this kind of of heart-searching demand which gets even to our thoughts and desires that sums up a life of purity. He is headlining this list of sins that he avoids by telling us that he does not engage in the kind of thing that is so prevalent in our day. He says he does not look lustfully upon a woman. And part of what he's suggesting by listing this first is that this tells us something about our spiritual life. Not that this is the greatest of all sins, but it teaches us something about what's going on in our heart. This is why in the Bible there is such a strong connection between sexual and religious faithfulness. Think of how idolatry in the Old Testament is referred to as harlotry. Or how in the New Testament it associates sexual immorality with greed and idolatry. Implying that to be unfaithful in this area is in many ways to be unfaithful to God. And to be faithful here is an expression of faithfulness to God and purity of heart. Christopher Ashe, in his excellent commentary on Job, says it would be a mistake to just take this as as merely the first in Job's list of possible sins. Rather, it headlines his commitment to purity of heart. He is so committed to this purity of heart that he has made a covenant with his eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. 
which ought to then cause us to ask, if we have not done this, or if we do frequently view illicit content online, or if we have a a wandering eye and lack of self-control in this area, what does that tell us about our heart? When pastor said, when you pass a girl walking on the street, when you're on the internet and no one else is around, when you turn on the TV or watch a movie, when you walk past the magazine rack at the store, the way that your eyes move in these little situations of life says a lot about your heart. And Job understands that. He understands, as John Piper said, that viewing these things is destructive to a person's soul. Their capacity to see God and, and the purity and the greatness of God's glory is shriveled because the soul tends to shrink to the, the size and quality of its pleasures. Piper says when a soul shrinks like that, it won't be able to make much of God. It won't be able to see God. It won't be able to delight in God anywhere near how God should be delighted in. Job 31 is reminding us of how pornography and lust are destructive to a person's soul. That's what Job gets at in verse 2. He says, what would be my portion from God if I were to indulge in these things? His answer, destruction and disaster. Verse 3 says, is not destruction for the wicked and and disaster for workers of iniquity? That's Job's response to verse 1. He's saying that you need to make a covenant with your eyes not to view the things that our world tells us we should because the portion of God for workers of iniquity is destruction. And he goes on in in verse 4 to to say that, that God sees all of our ways and all of our steps. And this is still part of his comments about lust. He's saying it's not enough to just not commit adultery. He'll get to that too in verse 9. And the reason it's not is because God desires purity also in our looks and in our desires and in our thoughts. Beyond that, also in our words. So he gets that in verses 5 and 6. He says, if I have walked with falsehood or if my foot has entered into deceit or hastened into deceit, then let me be weighed on honest scales that God may know my integrity. Again, he's speaking of how all of his life is lived before God's face. Every word that he's spoken is spoken before him. Even the words that he's speaking now about his righteousness, he's saying, I am not lying. I've not walked with falsehood. My foot hasn't hastened to deceit. And when I stand before God, verse 6, it will be clear that the words I've spoken are true. And I've lived with integrity. Job is saying, what I am on the outside, I also am on the inside. That's the idea behind verse 4 and verse 6. He's saying he's not a hypocrite. Which in the biblical world means that there is not a discrepancy between his outward behavior and the inner person of the heart. In fact, his heart is so committed to following God that when his eyes see something that they shouldn't, he is determined not to let his heart follow. That's what he says in verse 7. If my step has, has turned from the way and my eye has, has seen something that it shouldn't, my heart will not follow my eyes. 
Otherwise, let me sow and another eat and let my harvest be rooted out. Let me be judged. Let covenant curses fall upon me. Job is here describing a situation where his eyes view something that may encourage him to leave the narrow way and is saying, what we do in those situations depends on our heart. And as those situations reveal our heart, what we do in those moments reveal who we are and what we deserve. Job is saying we are not primarily victims of temptation, but sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. Job is again reminding us of the need for purity, which he does once more in verses 9 through 12, again reminding us of the need for sexual purity as he speaks about adultery and says that he will not let his heart be enticed by a woman and he will not lie in wait at his neighbor's door for that would be iniquity deserving of judgment. In fact, he says that he would then deserve to have his own wife taken away which, which he pictures as a great curse even though his own breath or life has become a stench to his wife, as he said earlier in the book, even though she has told him to just curse God and die, yet he is still faithful, still loyal to his wife, picturing her being taken away from him as a great curse that he would rather avoid. He was showing us his faithfulness and loyalty to her regardless of hers to him. That loyalty is, in fact, part of what enables him to resist the adultery that he mentions in verse 9. In fact, that's the point of a passage like Proverbs chapter 5. That delight in your own spouse is what enables you to resist the adultery that Job describes in verse 9. Job is describing a life of sexual purity. One that is fueled by fear of God by love for neighbor, and by love for his own spouse. Job is teaching us here about practical holiness. And these lessons that Job keeps bringing up about sexual purity three times now remind us that this is not incidental to what we are before God. Verse 12, sexual sin left unchecked, he says, will light a fire that consumes to destruction. It's like a a fire that you hold by your chest, Proverbs 6, and you will get burned. So bring this sin to the light. Confess it, make a, a covenant with your eyes to resist it and let your love for God and your love for your fellow image bearers and your love for your current or future spouse move you to faithfulness in this area so that your spiritual judgment is not clouded and the flames of destruction do not consume you. Job is teaching us about purity of heart. Next, he teaches us also about being just in his social dealings. We see that in verses 13 through 23. And again, just briefly in 29 through 32. And I'd suggest in these two sections, we see five areas in which Job is just in his social dealings. First, we see with his servants or inferiors in verses 13 to 15. He says in verse 13, if I have rejected the cause of my male or female servant when they complained against me, then what shall I do when God rises up against me? Did he not fashion us both 
in the womb. See, what Job is doing is he's reminding us that the dignity each of us have as, as created by God in the womb means that we must treat others justly, both male and female, verse 13. Regardless of social status, regardless of ethnicity, I'd even say regardless of, of whether they're yet born, notice how verse 15 teaches us to love even our unborn neighbor. They are created by God in the womb with the same rights as us and will give an account for the way that we treat them. We'll give an account for the way that we treat all those who are at our mercy and under our authority. Job is teaching us about not abusing our power. Second, he teaches us about the way that we treat the poor and the needy. It says in verse 16, if I have, have kept the poor from their desire, or if I have not cared about the widow, or if I have eaten my morsel alone and not shared it with the orphan, if I have seen anyone without clothing and not cared for them, then let me be cursed. He even goes so far as to say, let my arm fall from its shoulder and my arm from its socket. Job is teaching us here the kind of thing that Matthew 25 and James chapter 1 do about caring for the the, the widow and the orphan. Caring for the people of God, caring for the poor among us. Third, he teaches us about justice in our dealings with those who cannot defend themselves. Verse 21 says, He does not raise his hand, that is, uh, condemn the defenseless in his role as judge when he sees that his help or his companions are in the gate. He's saying he doesn't judge unfairly when he knows that he might be able to benefit or when he knows that he can get away with it. But he treats others with dignity. He's not a pleaser of men. But he knows that if he did these things, he would deserve God's judgment. Job teaches us about how to use the God-given authority that we have. Whether as parents with our children, whether as pastors and elders with our members, whether as employers with our employees, as judges with those who come before us, He teaches us about how to use the authority that we have. And if you move down to verses 29 to 32, he teaches us even about how we are to deal with our enemies, with strangers and foreigners. We see Job mention his enemies in verses 29 and 30. Even though he just prayed for their judgment back in chapter 27, Remember that from a few weeks ago. Even even though he has prayed that um, imprecatory prayer, he says here in Job 31, I do not rejoice in their ruin. So even in his prayer for justice, Job is not overcome with a vindictive spirit, but he understands that even the prayers of the Bible for justice are not prayed out of vengeful delight, but out of a desire to see wrongs made right. A desire for the glory of God. This is a man who does justice. This is a man who loves kindness. This is a man who walks humbly with his God. I see it also in his welcoming strangers 
and foreigners, which you see in verses 31 and 32, where it says that Job welcomes the traveler and the sojourner into his tent. He gives them a place to stay. He gives them food to eat. He welcomes them in. This is a man who loves justice. This is a man who is hospitable, who is pure in heart, who is just in his dealings with others. Who also rejects idolatry. See that in verses 24 and following, he rejects the idolatry of wealth in verses 24 and 25, not putting his, his trust or his hope in gold. We've seen that already from the very beginning of the book, that these things are not idols to him because when taken away, he continues to worship God. He doesn't put his trust in wealth. And he also speaks of resisting the idolatry of heavenly bodies in verses 26 to 28. Job is committed to worshiping God and worshiping him alone. Job is committed to keeping the first commandment. He's committed to resisting idolatry. And then lastly, we see in verses 33 and 34 that he rejects hypocrisy. And all of the things that he's just mentioned, he says, if I have concealed my transgressions as Adam, hiding my iniquity in my heart because I was afraid of the multitude, then let thorns grow instead of wheat. He says, let me be cursed. Job's again showing us his commitment to integrity, to be on the inside what he is on the outside and not hide his sins because he's afraid of what others might think of him. All throughout, he teaches us about purity of heart, about doing justice, about resisting idolatry, about loving God and letting that fuel his love for neighbor. He teaches us about being on the inside, what we are on the outside, and not pretending to be something at church that we are not in reality, but living all of our life before God, even the secret thoughts that we think when no one else is around, and repenting of them when we fail, not hiding our transgressions as Adam. This whole chapter, you and I would do well to to commit ourselves to become familiar with. And to see what a life of fearing God and shunning evil looks like. What a life of justice and of purity looks like. It would be well to consider the practical significance of Job 31. But as I said, this is not only a passage that has practical significance, it also has prophetic significance. So that's what I'd like to turn our attention to in the time that we have left. Because Job 31 is not just given to us to tell us how to be better people. Job 31 is not just given to us to tell us what a great person Job was, but is also part of this unfolding drama of God silencing the accuser through righteous Job's suffering. That's the whole point of the book. It is Genesis 3.15 unfolded. Remember, Genesis 3.15 is that first gospel promise that God gives that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. 
and the rest of the Bible is God unfolding that first gospel promise through types and shadows and pictures and promises. And that's what the book of Job is. That's why the book ends in chapter 41 with the dragon, Leviathan, the the prince of darkness being conquered. The serpent being trampled. But if that's going to happen, then this suffering servant must be righteous. That's what Job 31 serves to highlight. This is why you have that comparison to Adam in verse 33, where Job says, If I have covered my transgression as Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom because I feared the multitude and I dreaded contempt, then let thorns or or thistles grow instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. This chapter has several of these if-then Constructions, if I have done this, then let this happen to me. Let me be cursed in this way. You see the first one uh, back in, in verse 5. Um, if, back in verse 5 where he says, if I have walked with, with falsehood or, or if my root has, has hastened to deceit, and he, he piles on these ifs, and then in verse 8, then let me sow and another eat. I'll let my harvest be rooted out. You see it again in verse 9. If my heart has been enticed by a woman... I've lurked at my neighbor's door. Then let my, my wife grind for another. You see it in verses um, 16 to 22. And you see it again here in verse 33 where Job introduces this if-then clause. It says, if I have hidden my transgressions as Adam. But then you notice he, he doesn't actually finish it and, and get to the curse until verse 40. If I have hidden my transgression as Adam... All the way down to verse 40. Then let thistles grow instead of wheat. If you have the ESV, let thorns grow instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. Confirming that Job is indeed referring in verse 33 to the sin of Adam in Genesis chapter 3 who covered over his sin and hid his iniquity from God and so was cursed with thorns, and with weeds. Job is alluding back to Genesis 3, taking an oath that he has not sinned or hidden his sin like the original sinner, but has lived his life before God in holiness and righteousness and purity and justice from his inmost thoughts to his dealings with the poor, even his dealings with his enemies. Job is speaking of himself in a way that goes beyond his own experience, presenting himself as a second Adam, the blameless one who passed the test that Adam failed. Just as he presents himself in chapters 29 and 30 in ways that go beyond his own experience, speaking of himself as as having fallen from God-like glory to hell-like suffering, now he speaks of his righteousness in terms of a perfect second Adam, allowing us to see him in no other way than as a type and shadow of Christ. Again, C.J. Williams says we can only see this as the image of Christ in the words of Job. This chapter describes the perfect righteousness that Christ achieved as the last Adam and head of the covenant of grace. Job has become his spokesman. 
Just as David speaks for Christ so often in the Psalms, Job is here speaking for Christ. Or or better yet, the, the Spirit of Christ is speaking through Job, telling us of his active obedience, no hope without it. That's how Gregor the Great, the church father, understood this chapter. It is the voice of the Redeemer. It is the righteousness of God's servant, apart from which this whole gospel drama would fall apart. But with which, the accuser is silenced, the dragon is overcome, and even the unrighteous friends who have opposed God's servant and have not spoken of God what is right will be forgiven as this righteous one will intercede for them. This is the story of the book of Job. And Job 31 is an integral part of it where we see the righteousness of Christ foreshadowed at every turn. The one who did not lust but lived before God in perfect purity, perfect faithfulness to his bride. Who did not lie but lived his life in perfect honesty, speaking the very words of God who did not fail to give to the poor, but so gave of himself that though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor, so that we by his poverty might become rich. He did not cover over his sins, but but he took ours upon himself as the second and last Adam who succeeded where Adam and we fail. He is the prince, in verse 37, who goes into God's presence. He is the righteous one. Beloved, we see the righteousness of Christ. We see the glory of Christ in his act of obedience foreshadowed every turn in this chapter. You see, even as as the the standard of Job 31, even as the, the standard of practical holiness and righteousness that we just looked at in that first point of Job chapter 31, even as that exposes your sin and shows you and shows me what impure, unjust sinners we are, it does not leave us there. But it then shows us the righteousness of God's servant in shadow form, which is our only hope. And it calls us to cling to it. The one who fulfilled the righteousness of this passage and yet bore the curses that are described in it. So that despite your failure and mine, we might be able to stand before God through a righteousness that is not our own. Dressed in his perfect obedience. Congregation, do you see how this passage holds up for us a standard that we do not keep and then points us to the one who does and how that then fits with this whole drama showing us the absolute necessity of the active obedience of Christ who by union with through faith the words of Job 31 become true of us. As we are united to him by faith, the words of Job 31 become true of us, both positionally, as we are righteous in him by faith, but then also practically, as his spirit works in us increasingly a small beginning of this obedience, so that by the Spirit's power, we too might make a covenant with our eyes not to lust, might speak with integrity, might be devoted to our spouses in faithfulness, 
might treat the unborn and the less fortunate and those under our authority, whether in the workplace or in our home, with, with justice and with kindness. We too, by union with Christ, might give generously and flee from idolatry and detest hypocrisy. These are the things that Job here does as a type of Christ and that we now must do too as followers of Christ. Clinging to his active obedience, no hope without it, and then following in his footsteps for his glory. Amen. Our Father in heaven, We thank you for the book of Job and for this beautiful chapter in it where your servant is not merely bragging about his life or just just giving us an example, but is pointing forward to the righteous one who suffered unjustly whose active obedience is given to us then calls us to follow him having this same righteousness worked in us so we too would live lives of purity and justice, not of hypocrisy. Lord, this is our earnest prayer that you would point us to the active obedience of Christ, no hope without it, the one who is better than Adam as our only source of salvation. And that as you do that, that you would then cause us to walk by faith as his followers in the way that is described in this chapter. We pray in Jesus' name.